Well, hello there. You are listening to Cover Story, and this is episode 11. If this is your first time listening, welcome. Cover Story is a podcast dedicated to music. We have been diving into some cover songs we really dig and wanted to share them with you. You can find our archived episodes and much more over at thecoverstorypodcast.com. Today's episode features a side A and a side B with lots in common. Although their sounds are quite different, both featured artists were child prodigies from England. On side A, we dive into singer-songwriter Steve Winwood and his 1986 song, Higher Love, which was brilliantly covered by James Vincent McMorrow in 2011. On side B, we keep things interesting with some dudes that are truly the epitome of cool. We chat about T-Rex and their 1972 hit Telegram Sam, which was covered by the legendary goth band Bauhaus in 1980. Well, folks, it's an absolutely miserable, snowy, rainy Friday night in our quaint little beach town. As always, my co-host Filler and his lovely wife Jenny have whipped up some cocktails to make even the dreariest of winter nights seem like spring just might be on the horizon. After a few sips of this concoction, I, for one, feel like I am back in the high life again. The wind is blowing like crazy, and we have been warned that power is likely to go out any minute, so without further ado, let's get into it. I have a friend to thank for getting me back into Steve Winwood by way of the brilliant cover of his song Higher Love by James Vincent McMorrow. Although I was late to discover his version, the minute I heard McMorrow's spellbinding voice, I knew this hauntingly cold cover would live with me for a while. According to Matthew Hickey's 2011 review of the song for Turntable Kitchen, McMorrow strips the tune bare so it's little more than an eerie melody slowly pressed out on a warmly ringing piano alongside McMorrow's own ghostly falsetto. The result is that his version replaces the exuberance of the original with pleading and self-doubt. It's as if McMorrow is trying hard to convince himself of the existence of the song's higher love. I love McMorrow's version tremendously, but what I love more is the effect the song had on me. That after nearly a 20-year hiatus from even thinking about Steve Winwood, I found myself wanting to go way back into Winwood's early discography. While on this Winwood journey, I enjoyed my discoveries and rediscoveries immensely. If you check out some of my Spotify playlists from 2015 and 2016, you'll find songs by the Spencer Davis Group, Traffic, and Blind Faith sprinkled in here and there. I can't believe I've lived this long without knowing how brilliant Steve Winwood is. R&B, Delta Blues, Soul, Folk, Rock and Roll. From what we can tell, Steve Winwood never met a musical genre he didn't like, and he's been making those acquaintances for more than 50 years. Born in 1948, Winwood was still a schoolboy when he backed such blues legends as Muddy Waters, B.B. King, and Howlin' Wolf on their tours of England. In 1963, he and his older bass-playing brother Muff joined the Spencer Davis Group. The band scored its first number one single in the late 1965 with Keep On Running. Winwood turned 18 the year he co-wrote and sang the lead vocals on the band's smash hit Gimme Some Lovin', a song so stark and dramatically rockin' that it still stands up today. Critics on both sides of the Atlantic compared the soulful teen to Ray Charles, the young white Brit had the chops to record covers of music by the Righteous Brothers, John Lee Hooker, Lieber and Stoller, Ike Turner, Rufus Thomas, Don Covey, Ivory Joe Hunter, Curtis Mayfield, Elmer James, and even Hoagie Carmichael's Georgia On My Mind, which Charles, his hero, had also covered. Armed with youthful good looks and a Hammond B3 organ, Winwood left the Spencer Davis group at the ripe old age of 19 to form Traffic with drummer Jim Capaldi, guitarist Dave Mason, and multi-instrumentalist Chris Wood. 
With the melodic flair of someone three times his age, Winwood put music to Capaldi's lyrics so successfully that their songwriting partnership outlasted traffic itself. That wasn't the only trick Winwood had up his sleeve. He also proved to be quite the lead guitarist. When Traffic split up in 1969, Winwood formed Blind Faith with two-thirds of Cream. Guitarist Eric Clapton became weary of the constant fighting between drummer Ginger Baker and bassist Jack Bruce, so Bruce went his own way, and Winwood, Baker, Clapton, and bassist multi-instrumentalist Rick Gretsch became Blind Faith. Winwood knew Clapton from playing with him in an early 60s side project called Eric and the Powerhouse. Blind Faith completed only one self-titled album, Its controversial original UK album cover featured a photo of a topless 12-year-old girl that was promptly banned in the United States, and one tour before the band was pulled apart by Clapton's infatuation with Blind Faith's opening act, Delaney and Bonnie. It's probably the only instance in rock history where a lead guitarist leaves his superstar band to join the opening act. But that one album is a classic, featuring a great cover of Buddy Holly's Well All Right, Winwood's Can't Find My Way Home, and Clapton's Presence of the Lord. Times being what they were, it also featured the self-indulgent Ginger Baker song, Do What You Like, which rambled on for 15 minutes in all its ragged, hippie glory. When Blind Faith broke up, Winwood reorganized traffic, and the results were splendid. The band's John Barley Corn Must Die reached number five in 1970. The low spark of high-heeled boys and shootout at the Fantasy Factory followed enough to insinuate traffic into the minds and hearts of America's youth as one of the elite Brit bands alongside the Beatles and the Stones. After traffic, Winwood started a new chapter as a hired gun at studio sessions. He loved the freedom of being able to contribute to a recording without having to survive a grinding tour to support it. Ultimately, he was unable to hide his light under a basket for long. Island Records' Chris Blackwell practically dragged Winwood kicking and screaming to the altar of stardom with his self-titled 1977 solo debut, Arc of a Diver, and Talking Back to the Night soon followed. It took four years for Winwood's next solo album to arrive, but the critical and commercial success of 1986, Back in the High Life, showed the musician was just as relevant to the second British invasion as he was to the first. Six studio albums had followed since then, and Winwood released his first ever live album as a solo artist in 2017, called Winwood's Greatest Hits Live. It's a new two-CD, four-LP collection sourced from Steve's personal archives of live performances, with a 23-song track list handpicked by Winwood, featuring his best-loved songs, Greatest Hits Live offers fans a definitive musical portrait of his five-decade career. In 2009, Winwood reunited with his old friend Clapton for a well-received tour and the obligatory Live at Madison Square Garden CD. When Winwood, who is now 70 by the way, takes the stage these days, you know, he toured with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers in 2014, his voice is a bit huskier, but his delivery is as soulful as ever. Winwood's youthfully innocent good looks, his disarming manner, and his refusal to wear his stature on his sleeve can make for some surprises. He's a man whose exquisite musicianship, outstanding voice, and expansive musical vision had long set the standard of integrity. His is one of the most extraordinary careers in contemporary pop music. At 70, Winwood has a career that extends over 55 years. Steve Winwood forges ahead undaunted, continuing to create and perform new and exciting material. He remains one of the most important and influential artists in all of pop music. Let's hit that. So. Ah, my muff. 
Yeah. Well, so that's where I want to dive in. Oh my god. <laughs> So this is the result of the bomb cyclone the, the part. Duh. Bomb gen, bombo genesis, bombo genesis part oh, two. Mother, so mother effort. No, that, we talking about okay. muff. So muff Winwood. We talking about muff. We diving into some muff. <laughs> um, right, we're gonna dive right into muff Winwood. Uh, so. Muff Winwood. What did you say so on the, text the other day um, about like, muff and you DMV? Know, like, so this guy goes to the DMV and they're like, <laughs> he's waiting in line. And they're like, you know, Muff Winwood, Window Three, Muff, Muff Winwood. So, sorry. What I, what I like is Muff on. I don't know if you can answer this question. Is Muff on the birth certificate, or is this in like, a, <laughs> or is this like a nickname? Muff is 100 percent on the birth certificate. It's no the name way. he was born with. No, I'm totally fucking around. I have no idea. <laughs> however, however, I feel like with a name like Muff, you you have it right. Like That's you it. have like. You have swagger? That's it. Yeah. Muff. Oh, well, yeah, you own it, no doubt. Muff. It's a lot better than, like, if your name was, like, Wiener. Yeah. Like, Muff, like, you're, like, a Muff. It's yeah. like, what's your specialty? It's like, Muff. muff. <laughs> yeah. You're going to be all right, you know? Like, what's your expertise? He's like, Muff. Dude, but I told you that story I love about Muff was that he kind of weaseled his way into the Spencer Davis group. Muff. Right? right? Because Spencer Davis picked 15-year-old... Steve Winwood, Steve Winwood, out mm. of the pack, right? And he couldn't drive to the the practices and everything like that. Woof, right. woof. <laughs> so, so Muff, so what? So Muff was the driver, and he was like, "And I can play a little bass too, That's or right. whatever." Yeah, I'll switch to bass. I'll switch to bass. I'll driver. drive the kid. I'll drive the, you know, my, yeah. So my little brother's like this big talent. Yeah. This ridiculous, this ridiculous young prodigy talent. Right. And his older brother is like inclined enough to. To play a little music and drive the kid, and his name's Muff. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, the funny thing, did you guys know that um, Shaka Khan, you remember Shaka Khan? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She's singing the backup um, to Higher Love. Amazing. Isn't that mm. crazy? Shaka Khan. Um, yeah, she, has, she is the female vocals on the song, and she also appeared in the video. And, um, yeah, should we go back to Muff? Well, no. I mean, I think Muff's been. Yeah. <laughs> Real nice one, Jenny. We've, we, we've waxed enough muff I think we for waxed. tonight. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> but, um, um, so much innuendo. But, Jenny, we were talking about, like, Valerie. And, you know, I have to say, like, I've got to bring up It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia because... You know, I remember distinctly hearing Valerie when I was actually on a cruise with my family down to, like, some island or whatever in, like, 1987. I don't know when Valerie came out, actually, off the top of my head. But it definitely was Yacht Rock. And I was on a yacht, or I was on a cruise. But then, thanks to another friend of mine who got me into It's Always Sunny, um, come to find out that Dennis, one of the main characters, is a huge Steve Winwood fan. And uh, that clip that we watched was hilarious with the spin class. (laughs) That sounds like a pretty good plan. You know what? I'm going to take it one step further and propose that we start working on a muscle that we've been neglecting this entire time. And it's the most important muscle in the entire body. Which muscle? The face. That's a gift for you, Bumblebee. Come on. Enjoy it, Coach Dick and Balls. It makes perfect sense. It makes such a, perfect it's such sense. a brilliant show. 
It makes perfect sense. It's so funny that they picked Steve Winwood out of every, you know, out of right. every singer, you know. So how do we feel about the Higher Love cover by James Vincent McMorrow, who's this young dude, 35-year-old Irishman, uh-huh. Irishman, mm-hmm. Dubliner. Right. What, what do we feel about his take? We feel great about it. I feel great about it. I love it. I think what did you say fantastic. it sounded like? You said it sounded like something. Something. Oh, well, Jenny said it sounded like... Um, Mm. Like a Tracy Chapman song, yeah. like, and his voice does sound like Tracy Chapman's mm-hmm. voice, or that, like, or, or just like that experience you get by listening to her music. Yeah, it's hard to hard to really strip something back like that and and do it well. So, before we started recording, Jenny, we were talking about "Give Me Some Lovin'," and you didn't know that that was a steep. Had no idea. So, to me, that's the, like the most fascinating takeaway about my research is that he co-wrote this song at 18. He was in the band at 15. You know, they plucked him up, as I said before. Um, and in an interview with Rolling Stone in 1988, he has a quote that I just wanted to read. This interviewer is giving this like very long um, interview, and the article is called From Mr. Fantasy to Mr. Entertainment. Mr. Fantasy, of course, a reference to the traffic song, Dear Mr. Fantasy. Steve Winwood says, Give me some lovin' is a, obviously the bane of my life in some ways because I've got to do it all the time. But now you actually have a lot more people who have heard higher love than give me some love. Or often people have heard give me some love and don't know it's me. That happens a lot. They say, why the hell are you covering a Blues Brothers song? <laughs> have you guys seen Big Chill? The Big Chill? Yes. So that was my... No? I don't think I have, no. Filler. you got to see it. It's so good. Glenn Close. Um, mm. It's like, it's amazing. Cool. It's really good. Um, but they have the most, the best soundtrack, which introduced me to so many good songs. And one of them is Give Me Some Lovin'. It's like that football scene where they're playing football out on the yard in The Big Chill. And um, it took me years to like wrap my head around the fact that that's Steve Winwood. You know, it's crazy. I mean, what would the actor equivalent be of Steve Winwood? Somebody that with like a such massive, a fucking great like question. Like a massively like long successful career, but like under the radar. But like just un- like a star, but under yeah, the yeah, radar, yeah. but slightly all right, under the radar. All right, that's a what really would be like brilliant question? Um, well, my first inclination would be to say Jeff Bridges. Sure, I mean. But he he did come to the forefront more so in the last fifteen. You know, I don't know. No, for a while, Jeff Bridges. But then, like Post Lebowski. No, but Robert Redford. Yeah, the same. You're the right. same arc. But then he was more a producer and director. After the fact. Mm. It's not a bad call because it was. It's also like parallels very nicely. You know his peak. same timeline. Yeah. yeah, like same. Yeah, yeah, like the natural. Just somebody, just somebody that's been like part of your life, whether you've known it or not, for many decades. Yeah, for five decades, fifty right. years, fifty-five years, Steve Winwood. A part of your media life, media consumption life. So, so that's a very interesting question, which I bet if mm. my dad were here, he could answer that. Which is, yeah. you know, what actor got his debut, his like stardom in '68? What about Dustin Hoffman? Sure. Well, but Dustin Hoffman has been like the like a pretty mega star in like a handful of movies, right? But I'm just saying because he started yeah. to graduate. I think graduate sure. was like '68. You know what's so interesting to me too about Steve Winwood is like the way his brain is working to say, okay, I'm in Spencer Davis group. 
and now I'm going to start leave and start traffic. Right. And then he's in traffic for a little bit. And then he's like, you know what? I want to like bring in Clapton and do blind faith. And then he goes back to traffic. So. And then he decides to go out on his own. So to me, that's very interesting about the band dynamic, the dynamic mm-hmm. of bands. And it's almost like when, you know, like growing up, when you're cultivating your friendships and you start out with like a certain group and then a couple of people, you know, whatever. And then you like eventually like find your people. Right. It's like he kind of did that with music and... Sure. I find it so fascinating the Clapton, um, Steve Winwood dynamic, just because the two of them, you know, um, such like mega stars, and they call Blind Faith the first, like, you know, um, what do they call that term for like the rock band, like the 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 Uber super group. Super group thank you very mm-hmm. much. Yeah, the, the Blind Faith was considered the first super group um, when you have these big sure. heavy hitters, you know, coming together. But, yeah. I don't know. It's just interesting to me that like this, it is. you know, and when he first started with back in the high life, he's only 40, you know, it's like halfway through right. his, you know, he's already done so much, right. you know, he's us. No, his, his like style of music when he finally like sort of stumbled upon his like solo style of music is like really clean and very, very like very refined and, and a little strange. Like his yeah, it is a little it's strange. strange. Like I know it's, I you know so maybe that's why t- Dennis from It's Always Sunny likes it so much. Right. It's it's not quite you know it's like clean like Genesis. It's got synthesizers like a lot of other eighties music, but it's you know that Peter but it's slightly different, slightly off. You yeah. know that Peter Gabriel song Salisbury Hill. Yeah, definitely. That's like very similar vibe right, right? yeah definitely right? Dun, dun, yeah. Dun, 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 like it has that same vibe i mean genesis um, is another band where you've got phil collins and you've got mm, you know well, like Phil, these well, phil collins and peter gabriel early fascinating and then, and then it and then peter gabriel left yeah and they went from being like a prog band in the yeah. 70s to like this this very clean 80s pop band but like Phil Collins could really write a tune. Yeah, he really could. Yeah, he could really write a tune. But it's like, yeah, lives this in this world of like I don't know how this happened in the eighties, but of like older, like older looking men that were dressed conservatively, making very clean pop music yeah. with very manly voices. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I don't, I don't know how that how that all happened. But hmm. I'm glad me neither. Maybe it was cool. like the antidote to like who's that girl in the mall. I mean, you know, like that played the mall concerts. What was her name? Tiffany. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. I, I thought you were going to say maybe it was like the antidote to like the 70s when everything was very like uh, stylized and everybody was very stylized well, actually, and everything was very hold cock on. out. Like you know what? Rocking. You know what? That's I, I'd like to talk about that because what I discovered was that he was so over the um, touring and being on the road and everything right. like that. And he was doing drugs and he was, you know, really partying. And he ended up having like a near-death uh, experience where right. he had appendicitis. It was it was something more severe mm. than appendicitis, but it was a result of appendicitis. And he was like, I got to, you know, chill the fuck out. And he's like, why don't, you know, people always make fun of like nine-to-five jobs. You know what? I'm going to get a nine-to-five job and I'm going to enjoy my life. And he moved out to the country in England and he started reinvesting in his life and living like just like a very, you know, regular life doing a nine to five job. Yeah. And that's where he got like studio work. 
And about 10 years later is when he started doing the, you know, regular, you know, like right. wearing the suit, like doing the do the videos that you're talking about. It's so very literally yeah, reinventing it's himself. Yeah. Literally. And, and, and just because he wanted to reevaluate his entire lifestyle, right. um, you know, and you have to, you have to think about it, you know, like this guy has been on the road since he was 15. Right. Imagine, you know. So you have success at that young of an age. And you're just... You know, yeah. part of a, a world of uh, you know rock star life. You know, everything yeah, that's like your that. life. That's what at you know. Fifteen at fifteen, you know, right. that's yeah. weird. Uh, by the way, I also like this is so random, but um, one of um, Traffic's songs is called Backstreet Boys, mm. and so I was like, huh, probably, probably did the Backstreet Boys like you know take that? So I tried to find like that Origin. in my research, and I couldn't like you make know, the connection. Probably, probably some producer Very whoever assembled them was probably older and. And uh, lifted yeah. that, you know yeah. that people do Who that. Who knows, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. All, All right. right. Well. Backstreet Boy. Do you believe in reincarnation, or perhaps genetic memory, RNA altering DNA, experiences from one's ancestors finding their way down through the chain or up through the evolution of consciousness? Sometimes I do. Sometimes it makes perfect sense, especially when you meet a kid that is so fully his natural self at such a young age, void of experience but so precisely what he is going to be already, like someone who has lived many lives before and isn't fucking around in this one, someone who is all nature and very little nurture. Mark Boland was best known as the lead singer of glam rock band T-Rex. He was a primary pioneer of the glam rock movement of the 1970s. Boland grew up in Stoke Newington Common in the borough of Hackney East London. Later moving to Wimbledon, southwest London, he fell in love with the rock and roll of Gene Vincent, Eddie Cochran, and Chuck Berry, and hung around coffee bars in Soho. When Bolin was a pupil at Northwold Primary School, Upper Clapton, he appeared as an extra in an episode of the television show Orlando, dressed as a mod. At the age of nine, he was given his first guitar and began a skiffle band. While at school, he played guitar in Susie and the Hula Hoops, a trio whose vocalist was a 12-year-old Helen Shapiro. During lunch breaks at school, he would play his guitar in the playground to a small audience of friends. At 15, he was expelled from school for bad behavior. Bolin briefly joined a modeling agency to become a John Templeboy, appearing in a clothing catalog for the menswear store. He was a model for the suits in their catalogs, as well as for cardboard cutouts to be displayed in the shop windows. Town Magazine featured him as an early example of the mod movement. Tyrannosaurus Rex started out as a psychedelic folk rock acoustic duo playing Boland songs with Steve Took playing assorted hand and kit percussion and occasional bass to Boland's acoustic guitars and vocals. The original version of Tyrannosaurus Rex released three albums and four singles, flirting with the charts, reaching as high as number 15 and supported with airplay by Radio 1's legendary DJ John Peel. One of the highlights of this era was when the duo played at the first free Hyde Park concert in 1968. Although the free-spirited, drug-taking Took was fired from the group after their first American tour, they were a force within the hippie underground scene while they lasted. Their music was filled with Bolin's otherworldly poetry. In keeping with his early rock and roll interests, Bolin began bringing amplified guitar lines into the duo's music, buying a white Fender Stratocaster decorated with a paisley teardrop motif. After replacing Took with Mickey Finn, he let the electric influences come forward even further on A Beard of Stars. 
the final album to be credited to Tyrannosaurus Rex. It closed with the song Elemental Child featuring a long electric guitar break, a foreshadowing of things to come. In 1979, Bolin and acclaimed producer Tony Visconti oversaw the session for Ride a White Swan, moving him away from predominantly acoustic numbers to a more electric sound. It was the band's first hit, and it changed Bolin's career forever. Soon after, Bolin took to wearing top hats and feather boas on stage, as well as putting drops of glitter on each of his cheekbones. Stories are conflicting about his inspiration for this. Some say it was introduced by his personal assistant, Chalita Secunda. Although Bolin told John Pigeon in a 1974 interview on Radio 1 that he noticed the glitter on his wife's dressing table prior to the photo session and casually dabbed some of it on his face there and then. Other performers and their fans soon took up variations on this idea. The era of glam and glitter rock was born. Glam era also saw the rise of Bolin's friend, David Bowie, whom Bolin had come to know in the underground days. Bolin had played guitar on Bowie's 1970 single, Prettiest Star. Bolin and Bowie also shared the same manager, Tony Howard, and producer, Tony Visconti, but their friendship was also a rivalry, which would continue throughout his career. Bolin followed Ride a White Swan by expanding the group to a quartet with bassist Steve Curry and drummer Bill Legend, cutting a five-minute single, Hot Love, with a rollicking rhythm, string accents, and an extended sing-along chorus inspired somewhat by Hey Jude. It was number one for six weeks and quickly followed by Get It On, a grittier, more adult tune that spent four weeks in the top spot. The song was renamed Bang A Gong, Get It On, when released in the United States to avoid confusion with another song of the same name. The song reached number 10 in the United States in early 1972, the only top 40 single the band had in America. In November 1971, the band's record label Fly released the electric warrior track Jeepster without Bolin's permission. Outraged, Bolin took advantage of the timely lapsing of his Fly record contract and left for EMI, who gave him his own record label, the T-Rex Wax Company. Its bag and label featured an iconic head-and-shoulders image of Bolin. Despite the lack of Bolin's endorsement, Jeepster peaked at number two in the UK. In 1972, Bolin achieved two more British number one hits with Telegram Sam and Metal Guru, the latter of which stopped Elton John getting to the top with Rocket Man, and two more number twos in Children of the Revolution and Solid Gold Easy Action. Bolin told Gloria Jones the track Metal Guru would be the smoothest song in history. Telegram Sam is a song written by Mark Bolin for the British rock group T-Rex, appearing on their 1972 album, The Slider. The song was their third UK number one single, remaining at the top of the charts for two weeks before being knocked off. The lyrics feature numerous figures such as Bobby, a natural-born poet who is just out of sight, Golden Nose Slim, who knows where you've been, Jungle-Faced Jake, make no mistake, and Purple Pie Pete, whose lips are like lightning and girls melt in the heat. It also contains the lines Mark Bolin wrote to refer to himself. Me, I funk, but I don't care. I ain't no square with my corkscrew hair. The riff is similar in character to their massive hit from the previous year, Get It On, but in the key of A rather than E. Telegram Sam was the first single to be issued by Mark Bolin's own T-Rex Wax Company label and was released on the 21st of January 1972. The B-side featured two songs in the UK, Cadillac and Baby Strange, the latter also included in the album The Slider. Telegram Sam was written by Bolin about the music business accountant Sam Alder, who sent Bolin, by telegram, 
payments following performance dates on tour lest any money sent beforehand be spent and end up interfering with the performance. Alder also worked with King Crimson and Roxy Music, in particular Brian Ferry. In 1980, Telegram Sam was covered by the legendary post-punk goth rockers Bauhaus. Bauhaus were an English post-punk band formed in Northampton, England in 1978. The group consisted of Peter Murphy on vocals and occasional instruments, Daniel Ash on guitar, Kevin Haskins on drums, and David Jay on bass. The band was originally named Bauhaus 1919 in reference to the first operating year of the German art school Bauhaus, although they shortened the name within a year of formation. One of the first gothic rock groups, Bauhaus, were known for their dark image and gloomy sound, although they mixed many genres including dub, glam rock, psychedelia, and funk. Bauhaus broke up in 1983. Peter Murphy began a solo career, while Ash and Haskins continued as the legendary Tones on Tail, and later reunited with David Jay to form the very popular Love and Rockets. Both enjoyed greater success in the United States than Bauhaus had, but disappeared from the charts in their homeland. Although the band were short-lived, their music and the music of their latter groups was influential upon countless bands and artists that followed. At the height of his fame in the early to mid-70s, Mark Bolin outsold Jimi Hendrix and The Who with his band T-Rex. But his good looks, catchy songs, air of mystique, and untimely death at the age of 29 meant interest in the star has never waned. You see, my idea of rock and roll is that subterranean, homesick blues feel, says Bolin. Surrealistic rock and roll. That's what I like. That's what I've always wanted to do. I think I got close to it when I wrote the line, Cloak Full of Eagles. It's a great idea. You open up a cloak, and it's full of eagles. Great idea. You open up a cloak, it's full of eagles. Full of eagles. You know, I was listening to that um, today in Wegmans in the supermarket walking around thinking how funny it was. I think that mainstream like music fans know T-Rex for like Bang a Gong. Great song 20, though. You know, great right. song. But totally. only, they probably only know him for like a couple, a couple songs. That's yeah. it. But there's so much deeper shit that people should know and especially that's a rabbit hole that everybody needs to go down because like it's the coolest fucking music that's it I don't know how to qualify him but he sounds like he was just a star out of the womb like kind of person I don't know like when he yeah he he was playing music at a young age um, but I think he was just like this presence it like uh, just exactly what he was going to be from the minute that that young boy was conscious and they re- you get that vibe from him yeah. yeah and I feel like every band that I liked growing up that I really sort of connected with whether it was Nine Inch Nails Jane's Addiction Soundgarden Guns N' Roses they mm-hmm. all point to the cover band the, the the cover by Bauhaus that you recommend like that you right. that you talk about Sorry, yeah it's I'm a like, pretty legendary cover yeah I didn't spend that much time on it um in but my, the impact that Bauhaus reading, had, like, yeah, Bauhaus, Bauhaus was around for three years, had a really heavy impact on people, um, just because they were doing like a really like darker gothy brand of, of post punk. Yeah, uh, but like, I mean, it's funny. Like Telegram Sam, though, they almost made poppier in their version than 
than the original. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how did you get into T-Rex? I have no idea. Hmm. Um, I got into them a little later. Like, I was already into, in, into Bowie and having my whole, like, Bowie renaissance. Mm-hmm. And I don't know... I don't know... I think I just stumbled across... I always, You know, I always knew, like, the handful of T-Rex songs everybody, mm-hmm. everybody knew. But um, I stumbled down a rabbit hole at some point, maybe... I think that it came from as a lot of as a lot of my taste has been like shaped in the last ten years is the, like a little phase where I, where I was tending bar um, in Brooklyn at a place called Rope, and it was this really amazing regulars bar that I worked at for like four or five years, and it had this incredible jukebox, it had an incredible jukebox, um, and like people came there for that jukebox and. So that started to inform some of the gaps in my taste. It's actually, it's funny, because I've, I've been a musician since I was a kid. Yeah. But, like, there were some gaps in my taste that actually got, like, I, I had, I made more creative relationships and and learned more about music uh, curating mixes behind a bar for five years than That's I amazing. had in, in, in my whole life, yeah. uh, you know, trying to sound like Frank Zappa before that. Yeah. You know? So it may have been like it may have just been osmosis behind the bar and yeah. and putting together things that I thought like seeking out music that I thought was like super cool, super fucking tasteful, satisfied like my audiophile needs, but connected with people still. Yeah. And I think that led me to a lot of great music in the vein of like T Rex, for sure. Yeah. Because T Rex uh, appeals to audiophiles for one reason. And just like fans of music for another reason, yeah. or just like fans of fucking fashion or style. Yeah, like, just vibe. Too. Yeah, just you know, vibe. they had full on vibe. Right. And um, you know, I'm trying to think like how I got into T Rex, and I yeah, feel it's like a good question. I know it's it's a it's a really it's a really good because place. like I, honestly like they just snaked their way. Mark Boland just snaked his way into my into my world somehow and I don't remember how but that's exactly like like he like it's just so cool and understated most of the time so confident and it's like laid back way that all of a sudden you you don't remember how you I mean I don't remember how I got into them but they're all over my world for the last decade yeah totally so Amanda you you remember how you got into (laughs) T-Rex and it's kind of and it's kind of like kind of random it's cool it's yeah. totally random i was i just started getting into the who my dad turned me on to pete townsend mm-hmm. and i got into the who and i was listening to the song which i love you better you better you bet mm-hmm. and they have that f- funny lyric which is like and yeah, I, it took me a while yeah 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 when i was in the pre-chorus 12 to be like what are these talking about and it says i and I drunk myself blind to the sound of old T-Rex. And then he goes on to say it again, to the sound of old, and he slows it down. Old T-Rex. Right. And so I was like, what is says T-Rex? Yeah. And so I remember, I remember going, do you remember Vintage Vinyls? It was on... Oh, um, of course. Okay. Vintage so, Vinyl was on Route 35 in it. Ocean Township, and it was brilliant. Places like that do not they exist anymore. They don't exist anymore. And that place was incredible. Incredible. And that's where, I, like, literally, I would get all of my music there. And I remember when I discovered T-Rex in this song through through The Who, right. I had my mom take me, you know, to... Right. 
um, vintage uh, vinyls, and I got the tape of T Rex, so and that cool. was like my first entree. And I was like, oh, I love it. But I didn't That's really. That's a good story. Yeah, That's a good it's story. crazy, right? Yeah. How how like one sort of thing leads you to another. Anyway. Yeah. Correction. Vintage vinyl still does exist, just not in Ocean Township, New Jersey. They're up in North Jersey in Woodbridge Township and are considered by many to be maybe the best record store in New Jersey. So that's pretty awesome. Go check them out. Shout out. Um, this was a real record store, uh, vintage vinyl on, on Route 35 real in Ocean Township. Store. It was a real record store. And I was a kid, and like... My sister, Rennie, like, she had, like, CD towers, you know? She had, like, these towers, and they were fucking super organized, and they were real slick, and she just had so many CDs. Um, And then I went to Vintage Vinyl with her a few times. It was the first time I ever, as a little kid, like, I thumbed through CD after CD, and it was the first time I ever saw... Um, the way things were organized in a real record store, hmm, like in this, in this like, like a well curated record store will lead you to things that you didn't go in there to buy. Mm-hmm. You went in there with a certain artist on your mind, and you got led to something else by the way it's organized. Right, totally. Right. Or so vintage vinyl like had that shit going. Yeah. That was well. That was my first experience with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I obviously like I didn't realize that at the time, but in, in hindsight, definitely was influenced to be led towards cool shit. It's like, oh, I'm 10 years old, I'm going to look for Green Day. <laughs> and like, you know, yeah, I bought Dookie. Hey. But like, and it was good. You know but what? But like, it's I fine. also bought like something way cooler than that that I probably didn't get right away, but a week later I got. Like I understood, you know? What was that? I don't know. Oh, you know. But that's the way music that's that's the way that's like the way music buying is. always is for me. Yeah. Um that my mind is on one thing, I end up in another place. It takes me a minute to get it, and when I do, it's a total revelation. I love it. I love yeah. that. That's what I love about it. Yeah. Wait, but so let's talk about Telegram Sam for a little bit. Yeah, let's do it. What's your What's your take on on the versions? I think they're totally different. Yeah. Um. I I think the original is is just like. Just like any other insanely cool, like, like I'm going to walk slow down the street with a lot of attitude, shuffling kind of vibe, like, like T-Rex track. Mm -hmm. Somewhere, somewhere between telling a story and and making a character and stream of consciousness, Mm -hmm. these Mark Bolin lyrics, it's always like that. Yeah. There's things that like make it feel like a story and there's things that make no sense, but like he's just a wordsmith. Now I was reading something about Telegram Sam where... Basically, this is about his one of his producers who only communicated right. to him via Telegram. Oh, so so yeah. It's, uh, Did I mix it, that up? Well, no. It's in the reading. Uh, the accountant. The accountant. On, sorry, on his that's team right. That would pay them. That would like handle the money, take the payments, and then like you know dole it out. Yeah. Um, he'd make sure to pay them after the show. So you know, if you paid them like before the show, they might not play. They might like. About. <laughs> they might like spend it and like it would uh, like on booze and shit and fuck up. I don't know. That was my interpretation. They might like party with all their cash and and but like I guess uh, if that interpretation is like correct, then um, it sounds like Mark Bolin is like uh, expressing his appreciation for Telegram Sam's totally um, thoughtfulness in that regard. Like you're looking out, Telegram Sam. You're my main man. You know. 
Thanks so much for listening to Cover Story. We hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you've heard, please take a moment and write a review or subscribe to Cover Story on iTunes. We'd appreciate it very much. We hope you'll join us next week where we take to some Shakespeare tragedy love with Romeo and Juliet. And as always, until next time, look out streets. Here we come. With a love song that he made Find the streetlight Steps out of the shade Says something like